Welcome to Learn Me Right in Health Law and Bioethics, aka the H-Lab. I'm Sinead. And I'm Ruthie. And this podcast is aimed for literally anybody interested in topical health law issues, where we talk to experts who present evidence-based research. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal or medical advice. Any research or resources that are referred to within the podcast will be uploaded to our show notes after each episode. These podcasts are supported by the Australian Centre for Health or Research, where both Ruthie and myself are PhD students. And with that in mind, <laughs> today's episode is about voluntary assisted dying, and we're very lucky to have Jodie here to speak with us. So Jodie, we just have a couple of introductory questions for you. The first one is, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at QUT? Sure. Uh, so I have only recently started as a full-time member of the faculty here. I've been a visiting lecturer and a sessional lecturer here since 2000, when I say here, QUT, since 2015. Um, and so I was doing sessional work as well as research work while I was finishing my PhD. Hmm. Uh, question number two, what are your pronouns? Uh, she and her. Thank you. Your coffee order? I'm very allergic to coffee, so I am very, very knowledgeable about all things to do with tea. Um, I also admire the commitment that coffee drinkers have to their craft, so I um, feel slightly disadvantaged by not being a coffee drinker. Thank you. Okay, so favourite tea? Favourite tea? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, so I have like a, like a vanilla tea that I drink a lot out of, um, and a peppermint tea when I can't sleep, which is often, so yeah, between those very two. very soothing. Mm-hmm. And the final question is, if you were at karaoke, what would you sing? I did have to very quickly think about the last time that I actually was at karaoke, which was a long time ago. Um, but uh, so the B-52s and Love Shack, which might be a bit before your time, I'm not quite sure, but it's a song that doesn't need yeah. a hell of a lot of tone. <laughs> and it does need a lot of enthusiasm. That is what it also, it also, it, it's helpful if you can get really big hair, like in the beehives that they have in the B-52s. And I have curly hair and I live in a human environment, so I'm capable of very, very quickly for that. In character, straight away. Absolutely. Oh, um, thank you so much for that. Okay, so we're going to kick off with part one of the episode, which is what is your research problem and topic of interest? We know mm-hmm. that you've just finished, or not mm-hmm. just, but have recently finished your PhD, so congratulations. Mm-hmm. You. Uh, <laughs> you are Ruthie and uh, my inspiration oh. for um, PhD um, you know, results with no revisions. Mm. So, you know, think like mm. Jodie. <laughs> no, no, don't think like Jodie because Jodie spent an inordinately long period of time <laughs> thinking she'd failed because her, her examiner reports took so long to come back. Oh. But she'd convinced herself that it was because they couldn't tell me that I'd failed. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> it has been an awful time. I'm so sorry. And quite the opposite result. <laughs> from what happened so congratulations but please share with us uh what you spent all that time doing ah yes okay um so my original intention when i started the phd was to look at the reasons why there had not been voluntary assisted dying reform in australia despite you know numerous attempts i think there was a paper by White and Wilmot that talked about like 59 different attempts to try and get some kind of um, law passed in one of the Australian states. 
Um, I started my PhD in November 2016, and then in November 2017, um, Victoria commenced, well, they had their parliamentary debates and their um, uh, law reform process started around a voluntary assisted dying law, which subsequently got passed. So um, my research problem had to pivot really quickly from why hasn't there been reform to, okay, now that there has been reform, what are going to be the practical kind of implementation issues around a voluntary assisted dying law that we need to be aware of ahead of time? Um, so we were, I was going to focus on this idea of doctors as exclusive providers of voluntary assisted dying, knowing that doctors are... Uh, a group in society that tends to be um, more opposed to legalised voluntary assisted dying than other areas of the community, focusing on, okay, so what does that mean for a prospective VAD law in terms of the exclusive provider of VAD coming from a group in society that doesn't necessarily support it? Hmm. Can I ask Jodie, just based on your research, why do you think that doctors are more likely to oppose voluntary mm. assisted dying mm. compared to the general population? Mm. So it's not all um, specialties within the medical profession that have such high degrees of um, opposition to voluntary assisted dying. It tends to be the specialties that have the most significant role in caring for patients at the end of life. So palliative care is the obvious one. Um, and having had the opportunity to talk to lots of different medical practitioners during my research, um, I can only form a layman's view about why that might be, but I do think that it has something to do with the degree of agency um, that medical providers might have in voluntary assisted dying. So it's that idea of it's great to support it, but when you're the one that is actually delivering it, it's a very, very different kettle of fish to a personal view that something is right versus a personal, personal action that needs to happen in order to be able to fulfil that type of um, option for a person. Sure. Mm. So, yeah, so when it's not directly affecting you, mm. it's easy to mm. yeah, agree mm. with mm. the yeah. principle, but much harder to actually step yeah. in to take on I that role. So. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a background or research in uh, voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia. So for, for me, can you please explain the difference between euthanasia, mm -hmm. voluntary assisted dying, mm -hmm. um, assisted suicide, or, mm -hmm. or those terms that commonly get confused? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So language is really important in the voluntary assisted the dying space and we saw that um, when we were looking at the transcripts from the parliamentary debates um, so what tends to happen is when people are opposed to voluntary assisted dying there's very much a focus on the idea of suicide um, the idea of actively killing a person uh, that kind of language becomes very loaded um, whereas for those who might advocate for legalised voluntary assisted dying, there's that focus on the voluntary aspect of it. The, um, the idea of choice becomes very, very important. So I think voluntary assisted dying has been adopted in the Australian context um, to really focus on that idea that it is the choice of the person who is applying for voluntary assisted dying um, and that any other person who is involved in that is merely assisting that person. Um, Traditionally, voluntary assisted dying, the way it's defined in Australian law, is that it is about a person receiving a prescription from a medical um, practitioner and they can then use that prescription um, to be able to end their own life. 
And so that is something that we would see referred to overseas as assisted suicide. So the assistant either being a medical practitioner or a nurse or some other um, person like in Switzerland where you might have um, people who work for Dignitas or something like that assisting people to die that way. Um, euthanasia tends to be more focused on the idea of a person actively assisting that person to die i.e. in more than just writing a prescription for a drug that a person will then take so this is usually the idea of a person usually a doctor um, intravenously supplying a drug that's going to kill the person um, and so we see euthanasia used in that context so voluntary euthanasia in the sense that it's at the request of a person um, but then we also see language around involuntary euthanasia and some of that earlier research that showed that there were people who were um, perhaps um, dying not as a result of a direct request a direct and immediate and contemporaneous request of theirs mm -hmm. so between voluntary euthanasia which is the idea that there is a person who is more actively involved and assisted suicide where the action is limited by of that person to perhaps for the writing of a prescription both of those are covered in voluntary assisted dying law in australia though the primary delivery model would be an assisted suicide model it's only in australia or at least in victoria when the person is no longer able to actively um, ingest or digest the medication that a medical practitioner can then be involved and it becomes more of that voluntary euthanasia style type of um, act. Mm. Mm. I actually I, I have been uh, not truthful in that I don't have research. I did a, a minor research project where I had to go through and read all the debates from Queensland, New South Wales and Tasmania. Mm -hmm. um, so, And I noticed that one of the most significant themes in those opposing voluntary assisted dying was by um, substituting voluntary assisted dying with suicide mm. and then using the argument that it would send mixed messages to the community that we now support suicide mm. or it would you know, undermine all the incredible work that social workers in the community do in preventing suicide and actually helping people. Mm. And I did notice that as soon as you change that language around, you can just invoke a lot of different arguments that don't necessarily apply to what exactly we're talking about mm -hmm. so yeah i think one of the first tips from today would probably be like let's get our language right mm -hmm. so that we're talking about the same thing mm -hmm. and not you know send arguments crossfire mm -hmm. to things that don't apply mm -hmm. and the american association of suicidology which is like the largest peak body in the world um, advocating for people who are working in that space um, released a position statement uh, around the time that a lot of American states were legalising mm. um, death with dignity to very much draw a distinction between the very important work being done to prevent suicide yeah. and the equally important yet very different work being done by people in the death for dignity um, space. Yeah. And so if you've got a peak body um, of that kind of level of influence being prepared to draw that distinction, then I think that it's fair to say that the yeah. distinctions that are being drawn in the Australian debates between those two are fairly valid. Yeah, I yeah. remember... Oh, sorry, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I've also heard patients and families or, or people who are affected directly by voluntary assisted dying say that the term assisted suicide is actually really hurtful for them because it's not the person making a choice between living and dying. Mm. They're already dying mm. and it's a choice between dying with more suffering and mm. with less suffering. Mm. Yeah. So I think mm. language is really important, has mm. implications for how we think about law, but mm. also directly 
you know, impacts yeah. the people that are yeah. that are dealing with these. And laws. I think that's that's a similar kind of theme to a lot of these American jurisdictions, which mm-hmm. focus on that idea of death with dignity. Um, of course, that can then kick in a whole different kettle of fish, where people are like, "Are you saying that if I choose to die naturally, I'll die an undignified death?" So, I mean, it, look, mm-hmm. language is a tripwire in yep. this whole yep. debate, and I think that the choice of voluntary assisted dying. A, it keeps it fairly uniform across Australian jurisdictions that most of them are tending to refer to their law that way. Um, but B, it's also really trying to focus on one of those very clear kind of bioethical principles around voluntary assisted dying, which is the idea of autonomy. So, mm. yeah. I remember one of the um, examples that uh, was raised separately in two of the debates. I think it might have been Tasmania and in, in, and in New South Wales. And um, they drew on the pictures from the 9-11 attacks when someone had jumped out of the building. And no one referred to this person as committing suicide. This person mm. was actually considered a hero. Mm. And mm. and I think that that was the moment for me where I was like, actually, yes, this is completely different. Like, we need to think about these completely different ways. Mm. It's a very powerful mm. analogy, powerful story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it was nice to see that being brought up in Parliament in that way. Mm. That, mm. Yeah, that really laid it bare for me. Mm. So, Jodie, we know that throughout your PhD you published some wonderful articles on the research that you were doing, and I think that there's one in particular that you were going to share with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about the paper and um, and what yes. you have found in your research? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, um, I guess one of the findings from the research, which isn't wasn't a new finding for um, the field, was that the idea of doctors being exclusive providers of voluntary assisted dying means that if you don't have a significant or a substantive corpus of willing doctors um, to provide voluntary assisted dying, then that in itself is going to create an access barrier. Now, that's been observed in other jurisdictions already. It was the first time that my research was the first time that that was observed in the Victorian context. It's not a novel finding, but what it did lead me to wonder was how, what kind of government policy responses can support more doctors to be willing to provide voluntary assisted dying so that this clearly observable access barrier can be addressed Um, proactively rather than reactively and so the paper that I wrote around that was engaging with this idea of what um, is starting to be observed in the literature in the bioethics literature for the first time as conscientious participation Mm -hmm. in voluntary assisted dying not necessarily just in voluntary assisted dying it was first kind of observed in abortion um, work but you know that term conscientious participation which has like a long history associated with war and conscientious objection um, is now kind of being lent into in the bioethical space to talk about doctors or other kinds of health practitioners who are leaning into these um, taboo in inverted commas health practices because of their own ethical prerogative um, and their own kind of ethical views about what is and is not appropriate. So um, a paper that I wrote was around um, conscientious participation in voluntary assisted dying and the ethical dimensions of that. Mm. Wow. Um, Could you just give us a couple of examples of some Mm. of the ethical dimensions? Mm. Mm. Uh, So 
the interviews with the doctors that I did in Victoria, they were, I mean, these are doctors that are incredibly kind of intuitive and um, empathic and just like all round impressive. And what I learned from them was that there is a significant amount of um, uh, either latent or explicit um, anger slash tension slash conflict that they are or experienced initially um, upon the commencement of the voluntary assisted dying laws. And so their ethical drive was more about having to listen to what they believed their role was as a medical practitioner rather than perhaps what their professional colleagues or even their professional associations were saying was the role of a medical practitioner in VAD. Um, you might both be aware that the Australian Medical Association does not support voluntary assisted dying. So when you have the peak body um, in Australia for your profession telling you not to do something, um, that has the flow on effect of influencing the members of your profession and your colleagues. Um, but it also means at one point or another, you need to make your own mind up about what you're going to do. And allied to that is having to steer your own way through that in the absence of guidelines and processes. So the only real compass that you can use when you don't have those kind of professional guidelines and parameters is your own ethical compass. So um, many of the doctors that I spoke to talked about the idea of um, a whole heap of different ethical uh, perspectives. So wanting to respect patient autonomy, but also believing in their own autonomy as a practitioner to be able to make the decision. Um, the idea of a catalyst patient. So this is somebody who was so, uh, you know, there's a whole kind of descriptor of what a catalyst patient for VAD might be. It might be a patient who they've seen and known for a long time. It might be someone who is so adamant in their request that um, it's hard to say no to them. Um, it might be a patient that has ticked all of the boxes and is so obviously... Um, eligible for voluntary assisted dying that to say no would feel like patient abandonment. Um, there's a whole heap of those kind of ethical drivers that are in there and, um, you know, they kind of gel back into that idea of are you abandoning your patient, um, which is as important an ethical precept as some of the more traditional ethical precepts that we've heard, you know, thou shalt not kill and all of those types of things. Um, so, yeah, it's a real delicate balancing act for those doctors that I would consider conscientious participants. Um, that said, there were also some participants that you wouldn't necessarily consider conscientious in the idea that, you know, they're going into it with the full kind of backing of their own ethical perspective sometimes. Um, and there were a few doctors in the research sample who did it because there was nobody else to do it. They didn't necessarily have a strong ethical um, or political view about the act, but it was merely a no one else was around and I was going to do it type situation. So not necessarily that same kind of um, ethical set driving their participation more just that belief that they have an obligation to their patient and that's a professional obligation that they wanted to commit so yeah did you have any instances Jody, of people or doctors who might have been conscientious objectors who then shifted to become conscientious mm. participants mm. because they had seen how this played out in practice yeah yeah, that was actually, I did get to speak to one practitioner who had been very vocal in the um, medical practitioner community's submissions 
opposing voluntary assisted dying before it was passed in Victoria. And um, it was a really interesting conversation with that practitioner because they went from a position of everybody in my profession opposes this, so I'm going to oppose it as well, and to, okay, now that the law's been passed... I now have an obligation to facilitate access to that, even if I don't personally agree with that. And so this particular practitioner talked me through some really difficult conversations that they had with their family and some of their colleagues around their belief that as a legal option, the medical profession had an obligation to facilitate access to that. So that was a really interesting conversation. And I think that um, that medical practitioner in particular... um, probably still has reservations but those reservations are not as persuasive to that particular practitioner as their obligation to facilitate legal access so I think that there are a couple of you you mentioned before about their possible government policy Mm. interventions or responses and it sounds like from our conversation that there are a couple of ways that these could be directed so one is that you have a, a group of very busy, hard-working doctors who are mm. facing pretty significant ethical dilemmas and having to really steer this, you know, how voluntary assisted dying operates in practice. Mm. And then on the other hand is the access for patients. So these are kind of two related issues. How can you um, see governments or law or policy stepping in to address com- a couple of those issues? Mm. Um, so, yeah... In terms of the pool of practitioners, um, I think a really obvious and and actually um, evident um, alternative supply pool makes sense. And we've seen that in Western Australia and in Queensland with the option for nurse practitioners to be able to be involved in voluntary assisted dying, um, at least in an administrative capacity, though we do know that overseas um, nurse practitioners are also involved in assessments. Um, So that is one immediate and obvious way that you can kind of increase the pool of willing participants. Um, And just with the iterations of law that we've seen happening in Australia from the first kind of pass in Victoria through Tassie, South Australia and go. We are seeing that um, the feedback from Victoria is influencing the way that law reform happens in other jurisdictions. Um, I do think that there is a role that professional associations have to have in the provision of guidelines um, simply because a it's safer to have mandated guidelines that are guiding people who are choosing to actually provide this Um, and as a peak body you have an obligation to work for all of the profession not just necessarily the profession that might share if I could be so bold as to say perhaps a similar um, mindset to those who might be in um, you know leadership positions in those uh, in those professional associations especially when the evidence is kind of showing that the opposition to voluntary assisted dying that is held by medical practitioners here in Australia is on the way and quite significantly so now that there is more legalized options happening here in Australia um, there's a couple of things around 
how do you make it easier for patients? So you make it easier for patients by having, you know, centralised referral networks, which we're seeing to a certain extent in Victoria, but which needs much more resourcing and better resourcing because at the moment those referral networks and those support networks for providers are being staffed by, on a voluntary basis, by providers. So, um, you know, that's a difficult thing for them to be doing when they've got their own busy medical practices to already be doing. Um, So those communities of practice are really important and that's something that could very easily be resourced, um, you know, from from government uh, or even from the profession to be able to support that type of stuff. Um, I wonder if there's also just some time that needs to be spent on working out how to create an environment where people feel or practitioners feel more comfortable with choosing to participate. So um, whether that's training, whether that's frameworks, whether that's peer support learning networks you know there is some evidence that suggests that those things are really really important for practitioners Um, governments obviously have a role to play in that because it's part of the healthcare space Uh, so it'll be interesting to see just how much resourcing can kind of be channeled towards that so it's not enough to just legalize something that we think should be legal and permissible. You have to go beyond that and to use law and policy in order to regulate a particular system. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's definitely policy levers that need to be applied to, I mean, this is that whole kind of concern is you have a lot of very emotive debate, lots and lots of advocacy work happening to get a law passed that then is the potential of becoming a bit of a white elephant if you can't actually access it. Mm. Um, And I think that is one of the things that we tend to not think so much about until we're actually a a loved one or ourselves have to actually start into that process because, you know, the amount of media around that suggests that even though there is a legal option available in two, soon to be three Australian states, you know, um, media reporting of anywhere between like 100 and 250 days to go through the assessment process for somebody that is at the end of their life because they've been able to qualify by saying that they're going to die in the next six months. I mean, it's those types of things that I think members of the public need to be aware of, that it's all well and good to have this law, but in order to actually access Mm. it, there's a whole heap of other um, resourcing that is required and Mm. government and the healthcare profession has an obligation to kind of work compatibly in that space. Yeah. No, um, I saw in the news the other day that there was a a young girl in um, northern Queensland that um, she, I think she was 13 and had to be flown down to Brisbane to get access to an abortion because Mm -hmm. there was no clinics nearby anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this directly translates into into that as well, where Mm -hmm. like even if you, um, you know, if it is legalized, but you live in a rural area. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the um, rules I'd, please forgive me if I'm wrong, in, in Victoria, is that you can't um, talk about it over the phone. Mm, mm. So, like, is that another mm. policy regulation that we need to be adv- continuing to advocate for to change? Yeah, yeah. And there's been a bit of research work done in that space already because there is a Commonwealth law which prevents the use of a telecommunications service to... Um, support or advocate or provide any assistance around what is an act that might result in suicide. And so right at the get-go, when the um, law commenced in 2019 in Victoria, um, doctors were told, you cannot use telehealth, you must see people in person um, in order to prevent 
uh, potential conflict of laws happening. Um, certainly in the space of legal reform, there has been a request for the Commonwealth to reconsider or to at least excise because that law was, that Commonwealth law was designed in terms of, uh, as a response to online bullying and, and unfortunate episodes of, you know, young children killing themselves around that. So it was mm-hmm. designed in a very different policy context, but it has unfortunately found itself applied to this extremely different policy context in involuntary assisted dying. But yeah, rural and regional patients. Um, I had one doctor who was actually rurally based, but was dealing with a very um, remote client who had a, um, a very high output stoma. And so this um, client had to drive about four hours for each time that they had to do an assessment. Now a stoma, a high output stoma, means you might need to be cleaning out a colostomy bag every hour or so. So they were putting her in a car, she had to stop every hour or so to clean that out. Um, You know, significant pain, significant inconvenience, all because physically they needed to be face-to-face when he was very convinced of her um, eligibility. But just the way that the system has been set up in Victoria means that um, not only the doctors but also the pharmacists who are the suppliers of the VAD medication need to cite these patients face-to-face. So it was several, mm-hmm. um, you know, very difficult trips for that person to be able to access that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we need to think about is the way that this system has been set up to require specialists, medical specialists, um, at least in Victoria, mean that most specialists tend to be located in metropolitan areas. So again, you're you know, disadvantaging rural and regional um, populations who already face so many other kind of disadvantages. Um, mm-hmm. Again, having to get them to come into metropolitan Brisbane, um, Melbourne for their mm-hmm. assessments is is a real well, it's an inconvenience, but also it's it's yeah. a it's a discriminatory policy yeah. as it applies to those populations. Yeah. Wow. And and obviously this is an issue that is playing out in Victoria. But in terms of geographical size, mm. Victoria as opposed to WA or mm. Queensland mm. or other states that mm. are considering voluntary assisted dying, I mean, that's mm. a whole another kettle of fish. Yeah, yeah, which is exactly why WA decided to allow um, nurse practitioners to at least administer um, voluntary assisted dying. It was just by sheer dint of the geography of that statement that there was no way mm. that you were going to be able to get that kind of coverage. Um, but that said... And even though the West Australian law does have a section in it that says that anything that you do under this Act is not going to be in contravention of the Commonwealth um, law, it's still a conflict of law situation. So you've still got doctors who are in need of legal and other kinds of professional support that they're not necessarily getting from their professional associations because of an absence of those guidelines. Mm. Yeah, wow. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, the the last thing which Ruthie and I love about this podcast is that we want to share with the public some tips and tricks around this particular research and evidence. Mm. So we were wondering, uh, basically, like, what can the ordinary person do to either help this situation, so more like active involvement in this particular area, or what do they just need to know in just, like, common debate? Because this is highly topical, highly mm. controversial and, you know, very emotional and sensitive. Mm. So what what can basically we do to help this situation? Mm. Mm. Uh, I think harking back to something we covered earlier in the conversation is the importance of language. Um, you know, Queensland's law is going to start... 
first 20, yeah oh sorry Ruthie which what's the date I first, think first of January 2023 there you go <laughs> so within 12 months um and for those people who might be listening who are in other states you know where there is already a, a legal regime in place I think the idea of language around when you become familiar with people who might be trying to access this is is that important thing around wanting to know the whys and the hows um, and understanding the difference between you know a rational choice being made by a person who has to tick very very significant um, medical criteria in order to be able to access it versus this idea of you know oh you know it's a suicidal option because it's not a suicidal option um, so I think the language that we're using um, which perhaps has been observed in that kind of you know political space and in an academic space also needs to start being observed you know in the social space um, so that's probably a really important thing for those people who are choosing to um, access this service I think the, the other thing we need to think about is the actual difficulties of accessing the service. So from anything from the media reporting in Victoria, which talks about somewhere in the vicinity of 100 to 200 days of assessments in order to prove eligibility, um, through to not being able to find doctors who are willing to support um, or, or you know doctors who are um, basically not providing that option um, because they don't have to. They definitely don't have to. There is the right of conscientious objection, which is provided in all of the legislation which has been passed to date. Um, but I do think that conversation that society need, well, at least Western society needs to have at a more broader level about death awareness um, is a really important conversation. And this is part of that. And I think that idea that we need to get more comfortable talking about end-of-life options, we need it to be taken out of that space of, oh, I've got an advanced health directive or I've done this, or it needs to be a conversation which we're having with much greater regularity and hopefully um, the passage of these types of laws is, is, is kind of pushing us in that direction. I don't know if it is. It's hard to tell when you work in this space because you're always thinking about it. (laughs) So I'm not quite sure how many other people are out there thinking about it. But um, I wonder also if in a, a, as you said, Sinead, that more advocacy type space, um, being aware that when you give feedback around a law, that supports reform in other jurisdictions, and we've seen that happen. So the feedback from Victoria directly informed what happened in WA, which directly informed what's happening in Queensland. And so people talking about their experiences is probably the most direct form of advocacy over and above those very organised advocacy groups that we know of, like Death with Dignity and Go Gentle and play, you know groups like that that are working yeah. in this space. I- I do remember that when I was um, reading the parliamentary debates that it was a very consistent theme of those who advocated for um, voluntary assisted dying that they would often um, recite an email that they had from a constituent about either that they had a terminal illness and that they were desperate for access or it was from a family member who had watched their their family member go through just the horrible ending that Mm. they went through. Mm. And, you know, it was just... it was very emotional and it weighed very heavy on my heart 
but it was just very like noticeable that the community was simply just emailing their local member of parliament mm. to be like this is what's happened and this is what you need to do and it mm. was amazing to see how many members of parliament actually took that into parliament mm. itself mm. so one of the things I always struggle with is is it worthwhile emailing my member of parliament will that do anything mm. and in this situation this was the very first time I said yes this has a direct impact mm. Mm. and each of the the pieces of legislation that have been passed in Australia, to my knowledge, have a, a provision for review of the legislation. So I think stories have not only been important in legalisation, but they'll be important in that next stage of reviewing how the law is operating. So there is an opportunity there for the everyday person, I think, mm, to mm, contribute. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so those review... And I, I think the Victorian one must be... So 2017... 2022, so it must be... It must be happening later this year, that mm-hmm. five-year review um, by the VAD board down in, in Victoria. So that'll yeah. be really interesting because all of their interim reports and their annual reports are reflecting f- on just how some of these issues are kind of coming up as access barriers, either which we knew about from other jurisdictions or which are you know kind of endemic to the Victorian situation. Um, and that's because doctors and patients are willing to talk about what they've experienced you know so the Mm -hmm. only way that you're going to know how to improve the law is by allowing that to happen I mean I was I was a native title lawyer before I started doing health law and the only reason that I was interested in this question was because I watched my own mum go through a really painful malignancy Um, so that was that was the genesis for me to do this so you know if I'm somebody that can kind of go nothing about health law and then become um, not just committed to the idea of reform, but to do it in a way that allows um, empirical evidence, which can be objectively used by politicians when they're, you know, having these deliberations. Like that's a really important step for people to take those stories and turn them into something that is active and that is an agency for moving things forward. Yeah. 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 I think we might just have one last question. Shade might have another one, but <laughs> I have one last one. Um, I think a a difficult aspect of the law, especially in Victoria, is the fact that doctors can't actually raise this topic with their patients. So it has to be something that the patient knows and that they bring up with their doctor before the discussion can actually start. So I guess that what you mentioned before about increasing general death literacy and having conversations is important in that respect as well and overcoming the possible access issues with a prohibition like that Um, because many people might be going to their consultation waiting for their doctor to mention it and they never do so they just don't necessarily realise that it's actually an option. Mm, mm, Yeah and I think we also need to think about the the different kind of you know, ethical, um, social, um, religious, cultural backgrounds that multicultural Australia houses. Um, there was one doctor that described to me um, working with a um, a patient that didn't speak English, and so having to use an interpreter, and um, the interpreter becoming very offended once they had realised what the conversation was about, and actually leaving their consulting rooms and so the conversation couldn't go any further because once that interpreter took themselves out of the equation there was no way to be able to actually communicate any further about the request so it just kind of goes to show that until we are able to make sure that a people know that they can ask for it in victoria luckily well 
um, that is not as much of a situation in some of the jurisdictions that have been um, that have passed legislation recently. But um, we need to have a space in which. Yes, it's fine for people to conscientiously object, and that is a legal right, and we need to support that. But in order to make sure that that doesn't stymie access, there needs to be these levers, whether it's at a policy government practitioner level, that can support other resources being able to come into that. So, yeah, deaf literacy is an important thing. Health literacy in general is a really important thing because um, it's not only whether they know about that, but it's about whether they feel comfortable asking the kind of questions from their doctors where perhaps they see the doctor in that more paternalistic model where the doctor knows what's best and Mm -hmm. I should just do what the doctor tells me to Mm do. So that health literacy thing is a really important aspect of this whole debate. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so the more more we talk about um, death and end of life, the more comfortable we will become with just thinking and talking about it and then the more confident we will be become in raising this potentially on like behalf of a family member is that permissible as well to go with a family member and, and raise it there uh, so not in the Victorian context, it needs to be, and, and certainly some of the doctors that I spoke to, because we need to be very conscious of the idea of coercion yes. in all of this. So certainly some of the doctors that I spoke to talked about taking family members out of the room so that it was just them and the patient and they could really get to grips with was this the patient's genuine request or was it perhaps appearing a little bit more coercive um so that's a really important and i think that that absence of coercion makes it um it's difficult for doc i mean doctors will talk about how they are able to read the room but those more kind of latent forms of coercion mm. might not be yeah. immediately evident to somebody who say is seeing them for a you know a consulting appointment only and they're not they're not their yeah. kind of typical um doctor so yeah. yeah it's 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 a i can certainly see the option for people to be able to have those conversations but because of the focus on autonomy um, that is embedded in all of these laws, I think it's more about empowering that person yeah. to feel comfortable to make that request yeah. and making sure that they feel um, on an equal footing with their doctor in yeah. communicating this stuff because it is their body. Yeah. And yes, they are going to somebody for specialist advice, but it is not that person's body or life. It is theirs. Mm. And we need to make sure that people feel comfortable advocating for themselves. Yeah, we need yeah. to become a more confident society of a collective of individuals who are mm. comfortable talking mm. about this mm. as independence. Mm. Yes, mm. I hear you there. Mm. That's all from me. Um, thank you so much. This has been the most incredible discussion. I have learnt so much from you. I'm definitely going to go home and talk about this with my family. I think, yeah, just start that, that death literacy movement where we become more aware and more comfortable in this situation. But thank you so much. Um, congratulations again on your incredible PhD. We're so proud of you. Oh, thank <laughs> and, you. and I hope that you both understand that I'm sure the centre is very proud of you too. <laughs> like, completely going out on like, very new technological bounds here with the podcast. So, you know, thank it is you. very important thank to you. acknowledge that this is wonderful what you are doing as well. Thank you. Well, thank we you. appreciate yeah. that so much. Yeah, but have a great day. Thank and you. we'll see you around. Off to t- Thank <laughs> <laughs>